Hey, this is Blake Flatley with 1517 Music interrupting this podcast to share with you that we are currently booking dates for the Hymn Sing Happy Hour Tour. The Hymn Sing Happy Hour is a chance for people to sing songs they love with people they love. During these events, we sing through the liturgical calendar with selections of classic hymns and new music telling the story of Jesus and His Church. Last summer, we took the tour from California to New York and many places in between. This summer, I'd love to share these songs with your community. If you'd like more information, or if you're ready to book, visit 1517.org slash hymnsing. Dates are limited, so reach out to us soon so we can get your city on the schedule. Again, that's 1517.org slash hymnsing. Thanks. Welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio, joined by my dear friend and colleague, the Reverend, not yet doctor, Jason Oakland. Trying to get there. And a former colleague and friend, uh, the Reverend, the doctor, Mark Brown, who preached chapel here today at the college, and so we figured we would grab him to get him back on the podcast, uh, I think Mark still is um, our most frequent guest um, from the appearances he made in the past. But really, but we've got some catching up to him, and so we need to get you back out front, and we will help with that today. Um, we're going to be talking anthropology still, mostly talking Genesis. We're picking up with chapter four again. Last episode, we had our true crime episode, the first murder. I think we solved it. I think so, yeah. Um, that Cain did it. Um, <laughs> Weren't many suspects. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty easy um, to solve. Uh, but we're going to be picking up with the second half of Genesis 4, where we see, as I've joked a few times, um, that Adam and Eve through Cain have the worst grandkids ever. Um, they are just <laughs> terrible. And we'll see that they need to, um, for the sake of the gospel and for the church, have this other son. Um, through through whom a line of believers will come. Uh, who better to have on as we discuss Genesis uh, than the man who taught Genesis for years uh, here at the college? And uh, and this will be good because so far we've had to lean on the man who has taught Genesis <laughs> now at the college for a couple years, and it's yep. it's been rough. Um, we we tried to replace Mark, and we learned you just can't do it. <laughs> <clears throat> right that and that's good and it's good to, to not you know even try to you know be the replacement for mark that's that's what i've learned so yeah <laughs> none of you have to replace me on anything you do your own thing yeah. you're you're fine uh, <laughs> i did get to fill in for mark um, yeah once yeah. unfortunately this was not for a good reason this was when the Just dog took you out wasn't it that, yeah that was when your daughter made that wonderful cake for me with the Picture of the broken bicycle by the side. That was how I'd gone down. I remember that um, you tried to do more Luther than I did and a lot less Newsy tablets and stuff like that. Yeah. And it was maybe 10 minutes after the final class that he was teaching, he emailed me and says, they're yours now. So, 
the um, but we'll be continuing that. We, we want to get eventually. We're not going to do all of these chapters equally. Um, some will get more attention than others, and we we've seen that so far. But we want to get through the Tower of Babel and and just for you, Mark, um, to give a little sense. The idea for this is um, to be looking at anthropology, what we learn about human beings from this creation account, and um, whether or not someone uh, accepts the the six day creation. Um, they can't get around whether or not the claims that Moses makes about human beings are true, right? And obviously, we're coming at it from a standpoint of a, a six-day creation. <clears throat> but Genesis is, um, it holds a great mirror to us as human beings, and it, it, it tells us about who we are, how we relate to God, how we relate to, to neighbor. Um, and I think it was... Uh, Mark Twain, who even said, right, these chapters about the fall, um, they're the, and he was no fan of the scriptures, but they're the most demonstrably uh, empirical, right, um, assertions about mankind that you can find, because if you have any interactions with people, uh, you will soon discover that all of us, even the best of us, the greatest of saints, um, in civic righteousness have their faults and uh, um, their, their foibles. And so, We've had the first murder, and we're going to make our way to um, how is life on the world um, playing out after this. Um, Mark, we thank you for joining us. We're, I will have to go teach. The college is still making me do that. Um, it really gets in the way of my schedule. Uh, but uh, I get to go teach History 111 and then History 112. We're going to talk uh, Catalines Conspiracy and then the scientific oh. revolution. So it'll be fun, right? We'll have murder, and, and we'll have uh, the scientific <laughs> method. So that's at the end of this hour. We've yeah. Got, you've got an hour. Uh, we got about 40 minutes okay. <clears throat> until I got to run. Um, Michael's unable to join us because he has work. He's doing a, a conference call um, for kind of a fun project that he's working on with the, the Maros Institute, right, Jason? That's mm. right. Uh, Am I saying so, it right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's how I've heard it. You're not just affirming me because you're not sure? Uh, well, that's how I've heard it said, but maybe you were the one that was saying it. So. Okay, that could be. <laughs> um, so with that, Jason, why don't you go ahead and take us uh, to our disclaimer. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We'll be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. You find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you're just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let in the way. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born, and here, I'm going to say a lot of names, I'm going to butcher them. 
So don't judge me. You had Hebrew. You know how to say these things. I had Hebrew years <laughs> ago. Um, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered uh, Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered Methusel, Methusel, and Methusel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The son of one was Ada, and uh, the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the, fa- the forger of, in- of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. <clears throat> At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord, and uh, I will, as I've been doing, uh, throw it out to you guys here in the studio. To Mark or, or Jason, we've had the, the murder of Abel. Um, Cain has had, uh, a, I would say, a notable lack of repentance, although he is sorry for the punishment <clears throat> that he says he cannot bear. He's been given this mark um, that, uh, that none should, should kill him, and now we have his children, and we might hope for like a nice bounce back, like maybe Cain had come around and his kids recognize, uh, sometimes we see this happen, so that, um, uh, kids have kind of a, a, a rough home life, and they say, I want to do better um, than my parents, and we'll see that uh, be the case in the opposite way of what we would like, um, as Lamech will say, I'm, I'm going to do better than dad but I'm going to outdo him in unrighteousness. Um, and then we th- get these account of the generations, um, these what seem to be very talented people, right? Um, right very, yeah. very gifted people. It's kind of odd that Moses notes this, um, but maybe you guys have insight in, into that. Um, and, and maybe there's a scriptural pattern there as well. Uh, but anything that comes to mind as, as we see here what Moses records to us following that first uh, true crime. Well, um, I think I would like to back up to the beginning of the chapter, and you've heard referred to the story as the first murder, which of course it certainly is, but I would teach that more from the angle of how hard God works to come after us, to bring us back. You know, what did he do to Cain? He, he warned him about where his heart was at. You know, sin is crouching at the door. He came looking for him, which was probably didn't feel like an act of mercy to Cain at all, but it was the same way we come asking questions to our children and would say, were you over here playing in my toolbox or something? And there's a chance to get a look at what you did and repent. And then he, he really p- protects him with that sign. I think the term, the sign of Cain, is wrongly used in a lot of our literature, that it's a mark on somebody that points him out as a bad guy. This was meant to protect him, whether they could see it or not to give him the opportunity to repent. So then you've got the, the human race dividing into these kind of two halves, even though 
the rabbis used to say that Adam and Eve had 56 children. And there must have been enough generations mm-hmm. around that Cain was worried, whoever finds me will kill me. All right, I have to ask, how did they get 56? Do you have any idea? Or? Well, they just said 33 sons and 23 huh. daughters, and I don't know why. You know, the rabbis don't have to have a good reason if yeah, they can find some way to, to sort of play with the text to say something. You know, the Trinity is three, and that's, you know that kind of stuff. Huh. I, I just saw it as a random statement, and of course, the guys would kind of look around the girls and go, oh, you know. <laughs> but I would say, well, yeah, if, if Eve lived 800 years, that's not so hard. That's not so bad. A you child, get some nice breaks a child every twelve or thirteen yeah. years. That's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, little chauvinistic thing. <laughs> but um, you would perpetually have a teenager and a toddler, though. That would be rough. Well, <laughs> the and two I, worst stages. I think of a couple <laughs> of pastors who had were known for their very large kids, and the, the the mother of the bride was pregnant at the daughter's wedding because oh, oh. it was that long a span of wow, yeah, of yeah. children. Yeah, I won't mention any names. <laughs> um, but. You know, your comment about how these people are very gifted, I would ask students whether they had ever heard in their well-centered upbringing that um, people of this world, I don't like that phrase, but to use it, people of this world are more focused on achieving things than believers are because this is all they've got. And I remember we used to have to buy this little set of five very small home-printed paperback things called the old... The Northwestern Old Testament history books, and there was something in there that said that. But you know, none of the students would really say, "Well, I don't get that." You know, my teachers would say, "Yeah, go ahead and and you know get things done because you've got this gift." And just the other day, coincidence has it that I found an example of that. There was an editorial in the Northwestern Lutheran about 1969 um, about the moon the moonshot. And um, I had just read an article about how evangelicals had reacted very differently, where they, where this was this a great thing to promote mankind's gifts from God, or was this you know presumptuous like the Tower of Babel? And it was the sainted Professor Erwin Kowalki who said, "Well, of course we understand that the worldlings, I think he maybe called them, <laughs> is that they are going to make the world a better place and develop their gifts because this is the only world they have." And I thought. All right, I know I heard that someplace, and he did say that at least once. Sure. But I think the focus, the difference of focus between um, the people in Cain's line who, who um, produced things and were creative and curious, but yet who were viciously violent, mm-hmm. including, including Lamech to his two wives. In fact, sometimes in class I would try to do it as, as a rap song. Ada and Zilla, listen to my word, and I, qui- <laughs> I quickly gave up because. <laughs> but but the point was, it was it was really in their face, you know. Yeah. Compared to Seth saying, "Now we will proclaim the name of the Lord." And I I wonder with um, kind of with creativity or or ability, talent, um, intellectual ability or um, artistic, you know, whatever it might be. Um, I was reading this something the other day about different universities or schools and the atmospheres at them. And then we're talking about one that's a very hard school to get into and how at some of these schools it's much harder to cultivate collaborative work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so an employer was kind of talking about why they like students from kind of maybe a little bit less com- competitive but a little bit less competitive schools because there's less um, temptation to like sabotage others or feel you're in competition with your team. Mm and be able to to work with them. And I wonder if that would play into a connection between the violence and, you know, the um, 
kind of the, the gifts that they have or they're trying to bring to bear is it's not just um, that they want to be creative, that they want to do things, but the self-aggrandizement or the sense of competition that comes with it. And maybe that's something we see that our Lord in calling uh, 12 apostles um, tries to stamp down in them, you know, the sons of thunder, son, sons of thunder and others who is mm. the greatest, and Paul with the church as the body of Christ and the members working together, uh, maybe that is something that could play into why, you know, Seth's sons aren't, all their gifts aren't listed as much, but their righteousness will will be. Um, while for Cain's children, their, what stands out about them is their, their gifts. And when we do have this view that this life is all we have, and I, I think of the rich man and Lazarus with that when I teach that in class. Mm-hmm. I always say, well, we should want a pretty good world for the unbeliever. That's all they have. Well, like, so this that, is their yeah. heaven. So that came out in your thinking too. I I remember. Well, first of all, there was a movie called, or a recent movie called, Chair, which was all about how cutthroat the uh, competition gets between faculty members. I wouldn't recommend that. It's a little. I, it's a Mike little recommended that, and we did watch it. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't know if you did. Did you? I did. Yeah. 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 It was. It was. Um. Well, a little vulgar and colorful, in some ways. Uh. I well, mean, it's, and, and, and having lived my whole life within the protective womb of the wells, I thought, is it really that nasty? And it probably is in, in some cases. I mean, in theology, the, the competition to be department head has been, <laughs> has been very cutthroat often. We, we kind of all look at each other and inwardly pray bitterly that someone else will do it. <laughs> um, well, there's the I am the most humil- humble person award, too, yeah. which if you win it, you... You didn't win it. Yeah. But uh, I remember reading about some baseball managers who said they don't want any Jesus people in the locker room. They are just not competitive enough. You mm. know, they, they weren't willing to slide in on a, on a stolen base with their with their spikes up because they just didn't want to play that way. And he says, I don't want them around. Now, there are other, of course, Christian athletes who are quite outspoken about their faith. and But I, I, I think that's there, even if we don't acknowledge it. Now, I suppose what we should say then, in counter to that, is who would have a better reason to use their gifts to serve other people mm-hmm. than those people who know those gifts have come from God yep. and that they are going to be blessed by doing this. But also, to be like Solomon says, you've you got to give up at night, and he gives his children rest. Yeah. So you can't let this destroy you either. Yeah, and maybe mm-hmm. there's even a Matthew 25 connection again. We, we hit a little bit. Noah did. Yeah. Um, Noah yep. Bader came in last time. That the sheep do say when Jesus says you did this, they said, when did we do this? When did we do this? That you know that you're doing it for neighbor, right? And and then that's why you can also lay down your head at night because it's the gospel that frees you to do it for neighbor, but also know you're not called to be savior or messiah. Uh, it, whereas when I'm when I'm doing it for me or for neighbor in the sense of that I will be commended for it, um, rewarded for it. Uh, we we see while they may be. We always we can look at people and say, well, they were lawless, but there's always law at work. It's just a a malformed law, a sick law, um, yeah. and there's so they're they're still keeping points. They want status, and status is a is a law thing. I find things to boast in. What we see with the depths of the unbelief is that they they boast in things as Paul warns in Romans one, right? They they boast in shameful things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's really only 
two things to to boast in for the most part in scripture shameful things are the cross of Christ and and we see them boasting in the shameful things and maybe that plays into of how the believer views um, the use of of her or his gifts um, I don't know I, I just I find that interesting that Moses includes that here regarding them I think you've said Jason that he you bring includes up the specific gifts that you're yeah talking about. yeah and I think you've said that you've brought up in class too, and I don't know how much you've had students respond to it because it, it's it's class. Um, <laughs> but uh, but that it does seem that in these early chapters and, and right even through the Tower of Babel that the unbelievers are they're yeah they're more sophisticated they're yep. more advanced mm-hmm. uh, and and you know why. I don't think we take that and say, you know what, a, a Christian should want to live in the third world and, and we are just, you know, we're, we don't care about technology or progress. Um, I don't know, how do you play that out when you discuss with the students? Yeah, I think, um, so I, you know, I try to engage them in that type of discussion too and um, it is one where they they don't really see that as, you know, while the, the um, unbelievers have, you know, a leg up because of the motivation, you know, it's, I think they, they tend, and maybe part of it is the, the influence of the, you know, vocation focused, um, curriculum that we have here, you know, that, that points to that or, or some of that in, you know, their upbringing. Um, but I'm like, no, I, I, I wouldn't see that at all. Um, and you do try to say, well, let's play devil's advocate here. And don't you see that on the other side? And, Oh yeah, kind of, but not really. Um, and that is a fascinating thing to to see that you know they they struggle even to grasp that side of it, which is, which I don't think is that big of a stretch. And I don't know why why that is why they struggle with that. But well, yeah, I, I mean, in the evolution of our church body, if I can use that word in the sentence that way, the micro evolution. Um, yeah, well, yeah, micro, <laughs> not macro. No, um, I mean, we have more people that are successful in sciences, in the arts. I mean, we can point to people that have achieved a lot. And so our students are growing in an environment where this is held in front of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think if, I mean, I know that there were people that graduated from Watertown who went to Harvard or whatever, but we didn't hear about them much. Right. And, uh, and so they are in more of a climate where they, they're being told it's, it's all right and even good to succeed. And, and then um, along with that, I think there's, there's a different um, kind of a cultural thing. You know, we, <laughs> this gets a little off in a way, we were bothered with the Boy Scouts because the Boy Scouts would say, a scout is brave, a scout is loyal, a scout is trustworthy. Well, you know, we said, the new man, you know, there's, there's, you can't expect those kind of gifts out of the old man. Well, around here, I saw one time in the Rex, a warrior is kind, a warrior is this, a warrior <laughs> is that. But see, I'm struck by how all the kids of my grandchildren's generation are very willing to come up and tell you how good they are at things, whether they are or not. They've been programmed to look for things that they're good at. And I can only tell you, if my if I'd have said that kind of stuff to my grandmother, she'd have said <laughs> to me in good German, Eigenlobstinkt, self-praise stinks. <laughs> so I think there is a cultural difference that's happening around us. I, I think but, so too. Yeah. But, but, but then maybe, to look at it another way, I think our believers have a, a misguided idea of what it is to live as an unbeliever. They think that yeah. they're walking around constantly thinking, I'm going to die and I'm going to go to hell. And yeah. They have a very different sense of what motivates yeah. them in many cases. Yeah. 
there, that, just um, to that point, you know, and I think it's not just young people because uh, serving in the Fox the Fox Valley area, um, the pastor sometimes would uh, would kind of joke about what they observed in reading obituaries. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and there were two constants in the obituaries that they would see. One was, you know, the the undying love that this person has for the Green Bay Packers, and they're gonna they're going to heaven. You know, no matter <laughs> no matter what what their life uh, lo- looked like or or how connected they were to you know church or Jesus, they they love the Green Bay Packers, and we know they're going to heaven. You, you, by reading the the obits in the Fox Valley, you sure. wouldn't think anyone was ever lost. Oh, yeah. the very word heaven means something very different. Yeah, we've been watching um, New Amsterdam streamed, and it's says you know it's about the it's a takeoff on Bellevue Hospital in New York oh, with all yeah. the, all the poor and difficult, and of course it's it, it the, uh, the political viewpoints of NBC shows through in everything they do mm. there. But nobody's religious at all. But yet one of the doctors had a uh, uh, she's, he's got a three or four year old now whose mother died in a terrible car accident and he just tells the daughter that mama's in heaven which is a way to kind of cut off all right. conversation mm-hmm. but yeah. does he believe does anybody there give any indication they believe in you know a biblical heaven not at, or they wouldn't say it if they did right so I, I wonder with this too um, how much of the fact that we uh, whether we whether we realize it or not or want to admit it or not, that American Lutheranism has taken place in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and we imbibe, we drink of the, the same waters uh, and, and you know heavily influenced by Calvinism and Arminianism, mm-hmm. the notion of um, fruits being very important for measuring things um, and that I mean, even like American exceptionalism, that there's going to be something special about us as a country, but then Christians having that too. I think there, there is definitely the vocation thing, which is a good development, um, that we, we should delight to be able to serve in the way we're able to serve and to serve neighbor in that and, and to recognize and use our gifts in that way. But how much of that too comes out of, uh, as much as uh, I have, I'm doing the, one of the essays for the next seminary symposium, they ran out of WLC guys. So um, <laughs> I got asked, and I have kind of the history, and talking to them about part of what they were looking for, I know they want at least a section on kind of Calvinism and how it influenced America, but I've been reading a lot on separation of church and state and, and, and the history of that. And, you know, there was kind of these two compu- competing views that separation of church and state was so that we could have... Um, religious pluralism, which for most of our history meant a lot of Christian denominations. A lot of Protestants. Yeah, yeah we were, and we were very, yeah, in, in Protestant denominations, and we were very good at making those. America did a great job. <laughs> the other side was kind of like the state should be secular, so separation of church and state meant secularism. And as much as we might decry the last um, three, four decades being, we might see um, the church kind of uh, losing influence, um, the courts have actually kind of pushed back against the secular notion in in many ways uh, but the the funny thing about american secularism is it's still pretty calvinistic mm-hmm. hmm. uh, it's very calvinistic and so um it's perhaps both cultural and um immersed in american protestant christianity for us to want to emphasize what makes us special and good Right, and because in Calvinism you want to you want to show your elect, 
in secularism, we all need to be special because we've been influenced by existentialism and you make you, you, you have to, it's the kind of sometimes students will, will say, you know, professor, I'm having trouble finding myself. And so I'll, I'll look under my table and then I'll look out in the hallway and they'll say, well, what are you doing? And I'll say, well, I'm trying to help you find, find yourself. yourself, right? Yeah. Um, and, and maybe we see that, um, how do we balance that? And, and we talked about the body of Christ and the sheep and the goats. And, and maybe here we see Moses is making the point that for the, the children of Cain, this is entirely out of whack. And they have this compulsion to feel special, uniquely gifted. And, and so they become even um, violent with it to assert and approve themselves. And maybe this ties into our own day too. Um, Mike has talked about this some, but we've we've largely moved from a dialectic of or a an ethic of the good, what's right and wrong, and we've largely moved to like a, an ethic of rights and a dialectic of um, power and oppression. Mm-hmm. And maybe this plays into also that we we no longer really have arguments about right or wrong; we just make assertions, which is what makes social media and bumper mm-hmm. stickers so powerful because they're. They're the perfect size to just make assertions. And then we, what do we do when someone disagrees? We become verbally violent, right? Uh, and sometimes overtly violent, we've seen mm-hmm. in our society. Mm-hmm. And maybe this says something about what's built into fallen mankind is, you know, we have this, um, maybe according to the fall, is it fair to say this This primary, I mean, it's it's right up in the forefront Desire to be special, unique, and um, not subject to another, mm-hmm. um, even subject to my my neighbor, and we can sometimes overcome that. And even the the atheist can say, maybe we should work together. You look like a Thomas Hobbes, and he says, maybe we should have a social contract. Well, why should we have a social contract? Because we're pretty terrible on our own. We're nasty and mm-hmm. brutish, and we're going to be at each other's throats. And, and maybe that's something for us as American Christians to be extra keen to in our own day um, that we not fall into, as I think it's fair to say we have fallen into, um, especially with some of these elections and with COVID where everybody decided to lose their mind. And we, we did a whole series on this, <laughs> why America is losing its mind. Yeah. Uh, but that The gifts God gifts us being combined with power dynamics becomes a very dangerous thing, and it doesn't trend towards the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. th- I talked a lot there. I'll throw it to you guys. But Well, I, you know, you, you said something earlier about, about church and state and how that's changing. I, I, think, I think in the early history of our church body, and I guess I'd call it Missouri too, their sense was we are going to trumpet the separation of church and state, because we're best off being left alone. Just leave us alone. We were kind of... No har- milk money, right? Kind of, Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Kind of harmless but strange immigrants until World War One, And then we were out, and we had to prove that we were good Americans. I think, though, that we, weren't, we were very bothered when liberal politicians, you know, wanted to the, have the state be more religious, and they would appeal to, um, you know, to... to, to, to Liberal ideas. I, I you know, I, I watched um, John. What's what's his name that died recently? The civil rights guy in Georgia. Oh, um, um, not Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, yep, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I couldn't think of somebody in chapel too. That's the way it gets. But you know, I watched that his funeral service. I thought, I wonder if they ever hear in that Christian church 
the message that Christ died for their sins, or is their idea of freedom and liberal, liberal, liberalization uh, totally involved in a better place in society? And um, But now since the moral majority and since there's more of a Republican sense, well, then then we're not so opposed to, you know, <laughs> mixing church and state up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I, so I, I don't know. I, I think that we were, I think we're still really better off if, you know, if, if we could do it, that we don't take the milk money. Yeah. But mm-hmm. that's just not going to happen anymore. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's almost been, in many ways, the state has made it almost impossible uh, not to, in some ways, you think of, for instance, with uh, student loans and the federal government taking that over, and a lot of people, I think, at the time, thinking, well, that was a great move under Obama. But anyone who knows what happens when the government takes something over, and I say that as someone who's, in many ways, a big government guy. But, but, right, this is now that becomes a real fear for a lot of Christian colleges and universities is what do we do do if we, we, our students can't get those loans and other things. And it's kind of ironic that it... I think it would be an interesting paper at some point, and I'm not writing this one. Um, but it would be interesting, I think, to look at as you talk about kind of the history of, in our synod, how we viewed those dynamics and how it's somewhat shifted, and are we better or worse off um, for yeah. it? Well, I think the big the big turning point is when, under the guidance of Professor Lovrens, the seminary president, a position was taken in 1965 that there are areas of our life which both the government and the church have legitimate interest. And so rather than talking about absolute separation, there are areas that overlap. Mm-hmm. When I was first living in Michigan, we heard a regular report from the you know Board of Education of the district. They were watching this case somewhere where they thought that the private little school was being really sat on by the local government officials. It turned out they had no plumbing in the building and no bathrooms. Well, doesn't the state have a compelling interest in caring about the healthy facilities yeah. inside of a school? But they tried to church this into turn this into a, uh, you know, a persecution issue, and and it really wasn't. And so once you have a case of where both church and state have a compelling but overlapping interest in things in life, well, then it's not such a clear world anymore. And now we're taking hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dollars to support our own school system when we didn't used to take milk money. And you know it nobody, is a shift. yeah, for better nobody, or for worse. No, well, yeah. and and I mean, we can easily point to good things that happen, but you know, our forefathers would have said, "Doesn't matter. We we want to be completely separate." Kowalki said the same thing. He says, "I want a separation of church and state, which is absolute." Which is the same thing John F. Kennedy said in his debate, his speech yeah. to the Houston ministers. And and I think for historical context, with that, it's interesting is so many of our our fathers. Um, in the churches of the former Synodical Conference, recognized what they had come from in Germany yeah, it was part with of the state it. church context. Yeah. And so part of it wasn't just this American concern of, you know, this Jeffersonian letter to the Danbury Baptist type separation of church and state, um, but a reaction to the Landeskirchen, sure. to the state churches, the territorial churches, in the Missouri Synod more than us, you know, having come out of Saxony, um, Really, because of that, uh, so it's it's interest. It is, yeah. I'm getting us far afield, but I think it would be interesting <laughs> to look at. If I can connect with that, though, back to something. Uh, sometimes when we read the early chapters of Genesis, and we've hit on this a little bit, but I'd be curious to get your guys's take. And we're at about seven minutes here, so we're not going to get to chapter five. But I don't, 
you said you want to do chapter five, so you better have a reason because it's just genealogy. So, um, <laughs> and they died, and they yeah. died, yeah. And they died. yeah. The uh, and you're welcome to come join us on Thursday if you want, Mark, as we talk genealogies, Genesis five, <laughs> <clears throat> same time. Uh, but we sometimes forget that there still is church and state in Genesis, right? They do exist. Adam is governor and priest, right? Um, and we see with Cain's line, um, whether or not we would want a unity of church and state or a separation or some degree of intermingling, I do want the state to put out the fire if the church catches on fire. <laughs> right? um, and I, I do think it's good if the church sometimes feeds the poor, even if they're citizens of the state. <laughs> but uh, we see with Cain's line how out of whack things get when you only have state yeah, without yeah. church. When you only have law without gospel, and those who would claim that uh, there could be some ideal world that's just entirely secular, with no voice of the gospel for people as well, because the the church um, plays a, an important role in upholding society. Its prayers alone play an important role. And we see how quickly things um, just devolve. What does the state immediately become? It becomes coercive. They found cities, and these cities have these lugals, these warlords, <clears throat> you know, who are going to be uh, boasting of their violence. Uh, they become tyrannical, and uh, and that is maybe something for us to remember as well. But I'll throw it to you guys. Am I off on that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Any comments? Go ahead. Well, I, I um, you you weren't here yet, and I don't know if you're a chapel, but one of the last devotions I did with faculty was read Genesis 11, you know, the Tower of Babel, and I said, I don't want to live in a STEM-only world. Mm -hmm. I don't want to live in a world that's governed entirely by, you know, scientific achievement, intelligence, pride, with no leveling factor of the gospel, but the arts. I mean, I think, I think a lot of philosophy and literature has addressed the same questions, yep. not necessarily come to the same conclusions. What do you have when you have a world which is all... Uh, governed by this desire to succeed and technological improvement. Um, you know, I'd, I would say, you know, some of the people like Bill Gates really could have used the Lutheran Catechism class because these these companies have just really exposed the sinful nature of people and actually given it a new place to fester completely naively oh. that human beings would ever be like this. Yeah, you think of Huxley or Orwell, neither of whom are like proselytizing people to become Christians, but recognize this danger. Oh, um, yeah. That yeah. exists. Yeah, and yet, you know, uh, not, I don't really think so much Bill Gates is the, the Facebook guy. Utterly, Zuckerberg, yeah. yeah, utterly naive about how people are going to use this because his intentions were good. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. maybe. Mm -hmm. But, man, I mean, the, the level of stuff that people now use this for is mind-boggling. And, and, and just like with Cain's descendants, you sit back and say, wow, that is really intelligent you know yep. like jesus saying the children of this world are in their time wiser than the children of the kingdom yeah and you just kind of say wow isn't that isn't that a shame that they they show that and we sometimes don't and he can even use the shrewd manager yeah you know yeah. as an example the yeah. dishonest manager um you met you mentioned and hopefully i, I don't mess i just in my mind i'm getting older and i just i know the, the feeling way. <laughs> um from what you were what you were going to note, you just mentioned the uh, the wise, the people of this world. Um, oh, come on, wait. All right, I'm going to throw it. 
Back to you, Jason. I lost my thought. Sure. Um, I think that there's some some interesting things going on, you know, with... Oh, I know. Oh, Can go, I ahead. Yep. <laughs> go ahead. Go uh, ahead. Connected to that, when we talk about how human beings tend to use things, I usually point out to students, like with the internet, we were around when the internet really took off, and we thought the world was going to become so smart. All these documents were going to be available, all this classical music, all this art, and now we're at... Um, the internet, what's the big thing it gets used for? Social media and porn. Yeah. You know, and, and is anything more a commentary on what what we are if we if we just boil ourselves down to the material and the technological, how much of humanity gets lost and, and how much our our depravity comes through. Sorry for interrupting Jason, but go ahead. Oh, that was kind of the direction I was gonna go. I not quite social media and porn, but you know, that <laughs> <laughs> the idea of the you know, one of the things I think that you see here is the how the complete corrupting influence of sin and how quickly sin goes way off the rails and, um, you know, what a powerful force that is. And I think, you know, it, it's tempting to underestimate the capacity for wickedness and evil. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, especially since, you know, you see good and progress and the like too and which i think you know we also get maybe a glimpse of that i I think going back to kind of some of the the image of god discussion that we talked about in the the um not maybe the image of god proper but those other vestiges you know i mean you see that here too the husks the the you know in the achievements and the the incredible things that they accomplish but at the same time you know, how this also um, continues to um, take sin and one-up and amplify. And kind of going back a little bit to what you were saying too before about this idea of, you know, how that, although I think some would say government isn't, you know, it's not until after after the flood, right, when government officially kind of gets its start, but uh, this idea of wanting to be, um, independent, wanting to be my own, you know, and, and on my own. Um, I think that is something that you see here. And I, there's a, an article that, um, August Pieper wrote on sin and, uh, he really digs into Genesis four, uh, and says, this is, you know, the, the sinful nature at its core is selfishness. Uh, and, you want to you want to see the effect of that. You want to see the consequence of that. Read Genesis four. Is that the one great sin? Is one that, great yeah. sin, okay. yeah. And uh, then he says, and the greatest example of that is Lamech, and uh, you know that boasting of these things and um, of his wickedness, of his polygamy, of his yeah. you know um, uh, of violence, you know, and all those things. And I think that that extreme selfishness pushing itself forward. Uh, no matter who I have to push down to get there, um, man, you really you really see that in in this chapter, and I think that's both of those things. I think come through, you know, the idea that there's incredible potential in people, you know, to do amazing, incredible things, um, just from the secular side of it. But there's always that terrible capacity for wickedness and sin and evil, and and you see those right side by side in this uh, lineage of Cain. Yeah. So, so what, do you, what do you do with um, Christians 
who like authors that say selfishness is an important economic. So I can't, again, I can't yeah. think of the author. Ayn Rand. Kind of Ayn Rand, yeah. I mean, I know Christians who say, this is absolutely right, and you know we just can't continue to have a culture in which so many people are dependent upon the few who accomplish something. And um, that, that, that seems to be way out of balance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That w- one day we need to do one of those, and maybe you know who would be fun to get on here would be our, our libertarian friend, Peter. Huh. Yeah, um, there you go. Because that, I, I, that has come up in discussions before. I would think Kerry would be pretty good there too. Yeah, he as well <laughs> might be a good guest. <laughs> the um, we uh, we've got about two minutes, and I want to see if you guys have any take on this. Um, then I got to run to class, but Cain and Abel are just born. Luther points this out. So beginning in chapter four, Cain and Abel are born. Then at the end, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son. Bore a son, the first one called a son. Bore a son and called his name Seth, for he is a. Uh, Appointed for me another offspring of Abel. Um, maybe if we could just hit on at the end the importance of Seth for this chapter. It begins with two sons being born. It closes with a son being born, and it's going to go into a genealogy. Um, and maybe you don't have anything, but in like a one-minute thought, anything you have that comes to mind with why we would close the chapter this way? Well, I would think that if he is a true replacement for, for Cain, he's going to be a boy. I have the idea there are lots of other boys and girls around several generations. But um, Seth is going to embody a different a different view than the Cain-type people, and they may never stand out in their culture. They'll because, call upon the name of the yeah, Lord. Yeah, well, and it's probably better to translate proclaim the name of the Lord because I like it's, that. It's, well, it's hard to believe that nobody prayed um, all that time, but was it the way, did it get to the point where uh, you could no longer expect family members uh, and the general culture to talk about God, there had to be the beginning of public proclamation for people who didn't know. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, the, the verb, kara, can mean either thing, but it seems as though the context would favor that, and yet most translations Especially don't. with what Noah is going to be doing later. Yeah, too, yeah, yeah. What, what Noah does, yeah. Um, so I- even though there's much less said about Seth, I think it's much more significant for where the narrative of Genesis is going, because what happens when the sons of Cain find the daughters of, uh, sons of Abel, Seth find the daughters of Cain, that they're attractive, and attractiveness, money, position becomes more important. Then you've got nobody believing the culture, or the, the, the promise, and God has to intervene with the flood. It was like a harsh intervention, or else there'd be nothing yeah. left. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, good. Well, we're going to see now, Mark, if you remember how we closed the episode. I see Jason has not given you the sheet. Um, but we live in a fallen world. We live in a, a world that has uh, plenty of Cain and Abel situations, plenty of Lamechs, and even worse, we all have a little Lamech in us. Um, we can all be drawn uh, to our own uh, righteousness, self-aggrandizement. And yet Christ still comes in, God in his goodness, as he came to uh, Adam and Eve, as he came to Cain, um, as he proclaims through Seth, he still breaks in to set us free from ourselves and for him with the gospel. And so as we live in the midst of a fallen world, we can still nonetheless, Mark, do what? Let the bird fly. Okay. Get my party and die again.
hell with the people I think I'm not drunk, I'm just a jinker. I set him up, another round. I set him up, another round.